to follow along with us. We're in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Ezra 9 and 10. So we come to a close in our study of this great book. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Let's pray together. Indeed, Father, we need you every hour, in fact, every moment, we need you. If you were to withdraw from us, where would we go? What would we do? If you were to count our sins against us, how could we stand? If we were to try to run from you, where could we run? If we ascended to the heavens, you are there. Even if we ascended to the depths, you are there. So we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need your presence. We need your power. We need your help. We need your love. Lord, we need you. Right now, we need you to open our ears to your word and to supply to us the ability to listen and to believe and to hold fast and to respond. Lord, bless your word to your people, your needy people. Give us more of yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, as I said, we're coming to the end of our study in the book of Ezra. It's a series that we have called the hand of God because throughout this book it's evident that it's God's hand that's doing some rather extraordinary things for God's people. It was God's hand that sent them into exile. They were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And God had prophesied beforehand that he would, through a ruler named Cyrus, after 70 years of exile, return them to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to begin to rebuild the people of God to worship him there in the land that he had promised them. And sure enough, chapter 1, verse 1 begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of um, Persia. God moves Cyrus to send the people back from exile to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that's really been the story of a couple of waves of Israelites leaving exile and oppression to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish worship of God. Now, up until this point, what we've seen again is God's deliverance. God's working through circumstance to to deliver his people into the land. And we have been focused on the fact that these are exiles. These are folks who have been uh, oppressed and conquered, and they have had to deal with that exilic um, situation, even as they've been delivered and brought back by the hand of God. But there's a question that might loom over chapters 1 to 8 as we come into chapter 9. Might put it this way. If you are oppressed, does God care about your personal decisions? 
Or does the oppression matter so much that personal decisions can be excused? We've had theologians tell us that God identifies with the oppressed. Based on that, they've argued that it's the responsibility of Christians, too, to identify with the oppressed. And that's cool as far as it goes. Some of those theologians have gone a little bit further along the way. They they have told us that the only thing that can be called sin is the failure to identify with the oppressed. So those who suffer injustice, according to those theologians, seem to be off the hook for their personal decisions and personal sins. And from one to eight, the book of Ezra almost reads that way. We've had eight chapters of God delivering the exiles from Babylon and returning them to to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, as we said. We've had eight chapters of God turning the hearts of pagan kings to give the exiles everything they need for that mission. And we've seen how the exiles have dealt with harassment and opposition from, from those who were seeking to oppress them. But in those first eight chapters, we've not yet seen God deal with sin among the Israelites themselves. One might be tempted to think the only thing that matters is getting away from oppression. One might be tempted to think that if you're on the bottom, then your sin doesn't matter to the top. But then we have Ezra's 9 and 10. The main point in Ezra 9 and 10 is that God expects his people to choose him above all things. And anything else is idolatry. God expects his people to choose him above all others and all things, and anything less is idolatry. I'm going to read these two chapters for us. Let me give you the the kind of flow of the story here. First, we're going to see the report of the exile's unfaithfulness to God. That's Ezra 9, 1 and 2. Then the the action moves to show us Ezra's initial reaction to that report of sin, chapter 9, verses 3 to 15. Then the people confess their sin and they call for leadership from Ezra. That's chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And that's followed by Ezra making a call to the people to make a new oath to God, verses 5 to 17. And then basically around verse 16 or so, 17 or so, the people prove their repentance by their deeds. And that takes us through the end of the chapter. Now, if you're note-taking tight, let me get, we're going to do this in four points. Number one, sin will come to light. Sin will come to light, Ezra 9, 1 and 2. Number two, sin will break our hearts. Sin will break our hearts, Ezra 9, verses 3 to 15. Number three, sanctification requires action. Sanctification requires action, Ezra 10, verses 1 to 15. And sanctification is costly. And sanctification is costly, Ezra 10, 16 to the end of the chapter. God will have a sanctified people. Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites 
have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hole within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children 
gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, and on the twelfth day of the month, And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this whole matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Messiah, Eliezer, Jareb, and Gedaliah. Some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah. The sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pashur, Elioni, Messiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elisa. Of the Levites, Josabad, Shemai, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. 
of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telam, and Uri, and of Israel, of the sons of Parash, Remiah, Isaiah, Malchijah, Majamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Eliahonai, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azizah. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Aphli. Of the sons of Bani were Mishulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheol, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Adna, Chilau, Benaiah, Messiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh. The sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malchijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashum, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shemai. The sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Badiah, Chiluhi, Vaniah, Miramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, Jasu, the son of, sons of Benui, Shemai, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadibai, Shashai, Shahrai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalem, Amariah, and Joseph. Praise God for Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Matithia, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sin will come to light. That's what we see in Ezra 9, 1 and 2. The officials reported... The problem in verse 1, notice there, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abomination. Verse 2 tells us how far from separating they have gone. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Now we want to be careful with these two verses. Because in the sad history of this country and countries like South Africa, um, these kinds of verses have been used to uh, justify um, prohibitions against interracial marriage, so-called miscegenation laws, which were uh, th- this country's law up until Loving versus Virginia. These laws forbid, quote, race mixing. And, and there were and still are professing Christians, so-called kinists, for example, who looked at these verses for biblical support for banning, again, any kind of interracial relationship. And not only some professing Christians, but in recent months, we've, we've heard even uh, representatives in our national government, Representative Steve King, had argued that you can't build your civilization with other people's babies. So this ain't old. 
This is with us. But does this text really teach that interracial marriage is a sin or, quote, abomination? Beloved, no, it doesn't. Let me give you several reasons from the text itself. First of all, notice the real charge or sin here is that the people have failed to separate from the pagan nations. And the reason that was a problem was because God was concerned that his people would be drawn into uh, false worship. The concern is idolatry. The concern is not marriage. The issue here is idolatry, not identity. It's that idolatry that is the abomination in this text. But notice, secondly, also, um, verse 2 talks about the holy race. That's an unfortunate translation. Where literally is offspring. God's holy offspring, referring to God's covenant people, not as a biological race, but as a, a people saved through covenant with him. So it's not about race at all. It's about a relationship with God and being in covenant with God. And beloved, even if it was about race, which is not, it's not about so-called white people and black people. That's not who is in view here. America ain't in this text. So this text is about covenant. Covenant's another word for relationship. The only way we can know God is through being in a covenant with him, a a covenant that establishes the the terms upon which we have a relationship with God. We, in that covenant, owe God obedience and worship, and God promises to us by his grace um, blessings and protection. So what the people of Israel did was put a human marriage covenant with foreign women above their spiritual salvation covenant with God. And as a consequence, the act of marriage itself became idolatry and often led to the actual practice of idolatry. That's why the second verse there points to this issue of faithlessness. That's the root sin. They broke covenant with God, which the Bible calls adultery, spiritual adultery. And notice in verse 2, this happened throughout the entire exile community. The hand of the officials and the chief men were foremost. So from the leadership all the way down to the bottom, the exiles had, had, had broken faith, had broken covenant with God in this sin. And, and they had been doing that presumably for some time. And then God brings them in the exile back into the land, which should have been sort of the, the peak spiritual experience. We've come back to rebuild the temple. And how many of you know that sometimes when your life seems to be best is when God shines the light on sin, the clearest. So they're back in the land. They've made offering. And now this report comes up about their sin. It's possible to sin in secret for a long time. But when you least expect it, it will jump out into the light and be exposed couple things to maybe apply from just these two verses. First is just notice very clearly that hardship does not excuse disobedience. Hardship does not excuse disobedience. It's it's likely that many of these folks didn't think they would even return to Israel. And, And they maybe thought it was better to try and become as Babylonian as they could, including taking wives from the nations. Listen, beloved, never accommodate your spiritual life to your natural circumstances. We don't fix oppression by disobeying God. 
Sin is not a solution to suffering. The second thing, notice in the way of application, be very careful, beloved, of ever wanting a spouse so bad that you will divorce God for them. Notice in uh, just a cross-reference, you can look at this later, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This ain't just an Old Testament problem, it's a New Testament problem too, it's a problem in our day. 1 Timothy 5, 11 and 12 warns of younger widows, and Paul instructs there that he wants them to marry rather than remain young women and, and remain widows, and he explains because when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. The temptation to turn from God in order to find the comfort of a spouse is real, it's strong, it's with us, and we have to put it to death. It is not better to be married apart from God than it is to have God and not have a spouse. It's not better. Third thing. Christians, we we are God's new covenant people. So we should only marry other people in covenant with God. That is, we should only marry other Christians. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, where Paul writes there referring to, again, widows remarrying only in the Lord. Only those who are in Christ. Because the problem is the same. An unbelieving, ungodly spouse will draw you away from God. If he's stronger or she is stronger in the world than you are in Christ, you'll find yourself in the world rather than close to Christ. Now, when Paul writes that, he's not talking about the situation where uh, two people marry and they were not Christians and one became a Christian. He says earlier in the chapter, in, in such a case, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to keep covenant and so on, remain in the marriage. It's for, it's for the sanctification of the, of the marriage. When he writes this, he's talking about someone who's free to marry or not marry. And he says, marry only in the Lord. A fourth, a fourth application. In the Lord, you can marry any person from any ethnic group. Interracial marriage is not forbidden in the Bible. All right? But in the New Testament, it often reflects the way the gospel itself tears down racial and ethnic divisions and, and, and puts a spear through the heart of prejudice and bigotry. So if you're in Christ and they're in Christ, what you're looking for primarily is godliness and maturity, not skin color and nationality. All right? Final thing. I've already alluded to this, but just real quickly. Do not confuse ancient Israel with modern America. As Christians, we are not building Western civilization or protecting America. That's not our primary job. Our job is to build the people of God. Our job is to build a household of God. We understand that God created marriage, Malachi 2.15, because he was seeking a godly offspring, not an ethnic offspring. Israel is only Israel because God made them so. The first Jew, you realize, was a Gentile. Abram was from Babylon. 
He was from Ur of the Chaldees. And God almost ex nihilo, right, out of nothing, made him into a new people group. And he continues to do that in the gospel with people who are from every background, tribe, language, nation, and so on, being made one new man, Ephesians 2 says, in Christ. So our primary identity, our primary loyalty is to Christ's people, not to our natural citizenship or our natural ethnicity. That doesn't mean those things are irrelevant. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibility with regard to those things. It means that they are sort of uh, relativized to this truth that we have been made new and we are together a new people. Our aim is to do what Joshua 24, 15 declares. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the declaration that we marry in the Lord. And that's the declaration we want to fulfill in our marriages. So first point, sin will come to light. Second point, sin will break our hearts. If we're thinking the way we ought to think, if we're thinking about the glory and the honor of God above all things, then to see sin spread throughout the people of God ought to break our hearts. We ought to be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he says, I, I cry, I weep to see your commandments trampled. Ezra shows two responses in verses 3 to 15 that reveal how heartbreaking sin is. First of all, notice Ezra mourned in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. In the Old Testament, whenever someone grieved over sin, they, they would tear their clothes and pull their hair. We don't see that much nowadays, but when I think, if you want to illustrate this, when I think of this kind of mourning and wailing, I, I think of mothers who've lost their children tragically and violently, prematurely. The weeping, the kneeling, the, wah, the, the, the sort of gnashing of teeth. So this cut Ezra to the quick. Notice it, it knocked him to his knees. And there, notice second, Ezra fasted and prayed. So they begin in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, after the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and cloak torn, fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. So they've made their sacrifice. And now Ezra is going to God. He's got a broken heart. He's pleading with God. And what we have in verses 6 to 16 is a, a prayer of lament, a mournful prayer. It's a wonderful example of how you pray when you're sad, when you're broken, when you're, when you're grieving, when maybe you're even angry with God. It's a model for us. We might divide it into three sections. Number one, Ezra remembers Israel's faithless past. That's verses 6 and 7. See how he expresses shame for sin and the guilt of the people. He recognizes that that goes all the way back to their forefathers there in verse 7. Uh, he recognizes that the reason that they were in exile was because of that long-standing sin problem. So he comes to God in full acknowledgement of both the historical and current sin problems of the people. And he confesses. Secondly, notice Ezra realizes Israel's favorable presence. Not only the faithless past, but the favorable present, verses 8 and 9. He sees that even though they are slaves, God is still with them. 
He recognizes God's favor in preserving a remnant of the people and bringing the people back to Jerusalem. And he sees this remarkable kindness in God uh, punishing them less than their sins deserve. And even now, even in, in delivering them, giving them opportunity for revival. You see how he says there a couple times, brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. Ezra knows that God has shown them love in front of even pagan kings. It, it echoes Psalm 23, doesn't now prepare us a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God has been so good while the people have been so bad. And that drives Ezra to lament. And you got the third section there. Ezra recognizes Israel's future predicament. Verses 10 to 15. If things don't change, then things look terrible. Ezra puts this in three rhetorical questions. Verses 10 to 12, we might summarize with the question this way. What excuse can we make after knowing your command and breaking it anyway? What excuse can we make when we knew what you said and still didn't do it? Verses 13 and 14, we might summarize with this question. Shall we continue to break your commands even after realizing that you have punished us less than we deserved and preserved our life? Verses 14 and 15, second part of verse 14, verse 15, we might summarize with this question. And if we continue in sin, would you not be right to destroy us in judgment? Let those questions ring for a minute. What excuse can we make after knowing God's commands and breaking them anyway? And and given how kind God has been thus far not to destroy us, shall we continue to break his commands? And if we were to continue to break his commands, what's left for us but a certain judgment? A righteous judgment. Ezra is on his face, on his knees, praying like a broken-hearted leader. He, he teaches us that someone with genuine godly grief, grief over sin, doesn't make excuses, doesn't try to explain away their sin, doesn't try to find allowances for continuing in sin, a person really brokenhearted, weeping over their sins, comes to God with that brokenness, lays it before God, and recognizes they've got to escape that sin that's brought them to their knees and their faces. They mourn that such a beautiful God would be treated in such an ugly way by his own people. So the question becomes for us, beloved, do the sins in our church break our hearts like this? Do we lament the transgressions of ARC members with this kind of fasting and prayer? Do we sit appalled at the sins of our brothers and sisters? And God keep us from sitting appalled at other sins while winking at our own. 
Notice, Ezra has not done this thing, but he expresses solidarity with the whole people in their guilt. And notice he expresses solidarity not only with the people of that day, but with the transgressions of all Israel of all history. This sin is not some anomaly. This has been Israel's stiff-necked rebellion against God for centuries. And he mourns. If we haven't mourned sin in some time or perhaps ever, can I encourage us to find some time a day to sit with those summary questions, reviewing our own lives and the life of our brothers and sisters here in the church? What excuse can we make after knowing your command and breaking it anyway? Shall we continue breaking your commands even after realizing that you have punished us less than our sins deserved and preserved our life? And if we continue in sin, would you not be right to destroy us in judgment? Beloved, sin is dangerous and it's destructive. It will come to light and it will break our hearts if we're godly. Which brings us to our third point. Sanctification requires action. Notice in chapter 9, verse 4, some of the people of Israel have already been gathering around Ezra. I love how they're described in 9.4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening service. See, these are people who respect the Bible because they know it's God's word. They understood as we do that God literally speaks in his word and because they respect or fear God, they tremble at his word and tremble at sin. Here's a, here's a quick aside. The key issue in faithful dating and marriage decisions, beloved, is whether a person is serious about God and about God's word. Folks who aren't serious either dismiss what the, what the word says about marrying only in the Lord, dating only in the Lord, or they try to explain it away. But folks who tremble at God's word will not easily disobey God's word. These are people who are probably like Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10. They've set their hearts to study God's word and to obey it and to teach others also. So they're already trembling at the first report, just like Ezra. And they're already gathering around the man of God in reverence to God and his word. Now, when we come to Ezra 10.1, notice that that initial crowd has become a very great assembly of men, women, and children. They're as broken as Ezra. The end of verse 1, chapter 10 says, the people wept bitterly. When you, when you love God and you're really broken before God, you, you weep bitterly. It reminds me of Hannah, desperate for children weeping bitterly in prayer to God in 1 Samuel 1.10. Reminds me of Hezekiah, when Amos prophesied to Hezekiah that his life was going to be required of him. And Hezekiah, uh, in 2 Kings 20, verse 3, weeping bitterly before the Lord. But it reminds me most of all of Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, 75, he wept bitterly. Because the exiles had broken covenant with God, a, a great number have gathered at the temple weeping bitterly over sin. Such brokenness is the, the beginning of practical sanctification, of growth in holiness. 
And that's when Shechaniah speaks up. You see it there? Verse 2. He confesses that the people have sinned. Notice he also confesses there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Up until this point, there's just been a thick gray cloud over the entire narrative. But now hope begins to peek through. Whenever we understand that our sin is great, but that grace is much greater, then we know there's hope for sinners. Verse 3, Shechaniah says to Ezra, let us make a covenant with God to put away all these wives and their children. It's getting real now. If the sin was breaking covenant with God in marriage to women, foreign women, then repentance in this text looks like breaking marriage covenants with foreign women in order to reestablish covenant with God. This is radical repentance. But it's not foolish repentance. Notice, we know this because Shechaniah says, let's get a whole lot of counsel. He says, according to the counsel of my Lord, meaning Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of God, that's the people, and let it be done according to God's law, that's the, that's the scripture. So the action is radical, but it's also rational. It's not rebellious. They're not out there taking wild action. They're, they're seeking to do God's will and to confirm it through godly counsel and the scripture. Here's a pro tip. It's a good habit to seek your spiritual leaders and your Christian friends in the church and especially God's word whenever you need to decide what repentance looks like for your particular sin. Don't close yourself off to yourself to counsel yourself out of your sin because sin is deceptive. And sin is self-interested. And the flesh will rationalize. And the moment you feel the pain or the threat of pain, to put it as Jesus put it, to cut off your arm and to gouge out your eye, you will in your sin and your flesh instinctively draw back. And you will be tempted to think it doesn't take all that. Maybe there's a way we can make peace with this. So we all need, Pastor T, all the rest of us, we need the counsel of other Christians and the scriptures to better define what repentance looks like for our particular sin and to put to death the deception of sin in our flesh. That's what you see going on in this text. Now, Ezra must have been in some, uh, some kind of serious funk, right? Because it's Shechaniah who has to encourage Ezra to lead them in repentance. Did you notice that? He said, look here, man, get up and do your job. You, you, you're the bishop, you're the priest, you're the pastor. You're to lead us in this. And this is so encouraging. And we are with you. We're with you in this hard thing. We're with you in this leadership difficulty. We're, we're with you not only in mourning, but we're with you in, in repentance and pursuing sanctification and taking the actions necessary to live a holy life before our God. Beloved, we can't cry our way to holiness. We have to put some things to right. Sanctification requires action. And that's what Ezra and the people are, are, are mounting up spiritual courage to do. See how Ezra gets to work? He makes everyone take an oath in verse 5. He spends another night fasting and mourning in verse 6. Then he issues a proclamation for everyone to assemble or be excommunicated in verses 7 and 8. See, church discipline is an old practice too. 
in verses 9 to 11, the men of Judah, they assemble, they come together. Now the work is, is moving from Ezra to all the people. They've come quickly because they only had three days notice. Imagine them. Many have come carrying a heavy weight of sin. They're probably tired. It's the rainy season, and they're gathered there in the pouring rain. And the Bible says they tremble both because of their sin and because of the rain. And Ezra calls them to separate from their foreign wives. In sanctification, Ezra Ezra has to take action, but so do the people. Verses 12 to 17, the, the people now go to work. They decided they must do as Ezra said. Verse 12, they they shouted out loud. They recognized that it can't be done right there on the spot because of the number of people in the rain. Verse 13, so they let the officials represent them and they schedule times for the people who have married foreign wives to come in to meet with those officials in verse 14. And they commit themselves, notice, they commit themselves to this until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Serious view of God's wrath against sin will inspire the godly to take action in sanctification. It is perhaps the case that the righteous wrath of God, the reality of it, rests too lightly on the conscience of the world and even the church. These folks say, no, 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 no. We have got to do what has to be done until God's wrath is turned away. Whenever you see an entire community confessing their sins and committing to repentance, you know the Holy Spirit is working revival among them. Sometimes people say, I, I should wish God would send revival so we could all be unified and, and, and all you know, put away sin and grow in holiness. Beloved, or actually they say it the other way. We all need to be unified. We all need to put away sin so that we can have revival. If we are unified and putting away sin, revival has come. The Lord has already poured out his spirit on us just as he has done with the people here. They take action to keep their covenant with God, even if it costs them their covenant with their spouses. Sanctification requires action. We do not drift into holiness. We need a plan for growing in righteousness and holiness with God. A Christian without a plan for holiness is likely not to be a holy Christian. So that's the question. Do we have a plan? Do you have a plan to repent of specific sin with the counsel of the godly and to grow in holiness? Sanctification requires action, but finally, Sanctification is costly. It's costly. The most powerful sentence in the chapter may be that first sentence in verse 16 of chapter 10. Did you see it there? Then the returned exiles did so. It's a simple sentence. God said so. The people did so. That's the heart and the nub of growing in sanctification. But the sentence in its simplicity, it it maybe hides from us the immense courage and cause included here. Took them three months to work through all the people according to their father's houses, verse 16, 17. 
At the end of those three months, the people repented. They proved their repentance by putting away their wives. Verses 18 to 43, which I will not read for you again, lists for us all the men who had taken foreign wives and put them away. When you think about the names listed in 18 to 43, do you think of it as a hall of shame or a hall of fame? If we're a bit self-righteous, just a pinch, we probably look at this list of names with a bit of judgment in our hearts. As we focus on their sin rather than their repentance. But what does heaven focus on? I mean, according to Luke 15, the repentance of one sinner causes all of heaven to rejoice. What do you think is the party like in heaven at the repentance of all of these men in turning back to God? Heaven is bananas right now. So I think this is probably better read as a a hall of fame of the repentant who are remembered in heaven for their extravagant repentance and faithfulness to God and who are celebrated for turning to God. Repentance is so sweet, beloved. It's costly, but it's worth it. You will not be forgotten before God. You'll be remembered, memorialized, kept, for the glory of God and for the joy of your own soul. Repentance is such sweet relief to the sinner. But jump to the end of the chapter, verse 44. It ends on a sudden and I think sad note. It reads there, all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. Full stop. No explanation. No further word about these women and children. Just full stop. I think this sudden ending, which focuses on the women and children, is meant to sober us regarding the cost of sin and sanctification. We try to make several sort of brief kind of observations here. You can talk to me later as to whether or not you think this is true. But number one, sin not only costs the saint, but those that the saint cares for. I I, I trust that these men love their wives and their children. But we are meant to feel the heavy weight of both our sin, but also the weight of our sin's effect on those near to us. Number two, repentance does not magically erase or fix consequences. They are not condemned, Romans 8, 1, now there's no no condemnation, right? But they are not free of consequence either. So if we have a shallow view of repentance that makes us think, oh, if I confess this, all the consequences of my sin are just going to go away, we're in for a rude awakening. So repentance is right, but it doesn't magically fix everything. Here's the third thing, I think. I think the chapter ends this way, and we are meant to empathize with these women and children. We're meant to see them and not erase them. God's a perfect author. You're not wasting words. 
He's not sort of ending the book because he kind of ran out of time. The fact that the last thing our eyes and hearts are directed toward are the women and children who are affected by Israel's sin, I think is meant to sort of grow in us a loving concern for those who are impacted by the sins of God's people. If if, if I'm going to strengthen my argument there, I take you to Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, where Sarah and Abraham put away Hagar in unrighteousness. And Hagar is out in the wilderness with her son Ishmael, really bitterly weeping. And she's out there. She thinks she's all alone. She's put the baby at some distance. She's crossed the field. She's weeping. And God comes to her. And God makes promises to Ishmael and to Hagar. And do you remember the nickname that Hagar gives God in Genesis 16, 13? She basically nicknames him the God who sees me. And she calls that place the place where I saw the God who saw me, right? Oh, beloved, never fall into thinking that because men have messed things up with women or children or sin in some way, and the consequence is being disproportionately sort of borne by those folks, never think that God doesn't see them and that God's not with them. We believe that he is. We trust that he is. And because he sees them, we should see them. And because he responds to them, we should respond to them. I'll give you another observation, just sort of hanging off that last verse. It's not that repentance is messy. It's that sin is messy. Because sin creates situations that cannot be neatly fixed. And sometimes we begin to think about repentance and we go, ah, this is too hard. This is going to be messy. No, actually, the repentance is clear. You did X and you shouldn't have. Now you need to stop doing X and fix X, right? That much is clear. The the chaos, the complexity, the, the messiness is not caused by order, which repentance puts us back in with God. It's caused by the disorder which sin itself creates. So pastorally, if something looks messy to fix, Don't shrink back from it because it looks messy. Do the clear thing, the right thing to restore order. The messiness is just the echo of the sin. Don't let the messiness tempt you to make peace with the sin. Repent anyway, however hard, and that's how order is restored. It's not repentance that creates the messiness. It's the sin. Number six or four or five, whatever it is. (laughs) Beloved, some things are only fixed by the gospel. We, We live in a world of inconsolable brokenness. There are things that are not easily comforted. There are things that expose our platitudes. A fallen world does not always allow a a, a quick or lasting or an easy fix. There are some sins that leave consequences that we endure rather than repair. And they aren't adequately healed apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
apart from the cross where Christ was crucified for those sins. Crucified and resurrected to, to bring us forgiveness and righteousness. And in his crucifixion and resurrection is the renewal of the entire creation. So, so that the, the brokenness that these women and children suffer in this life, that's not easily fixed, that's caused by others, that brokenness may not be healed in this life, but it will be healed in the kingdom. Because there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more abandonment of women and children. There'll be no more broken promises. There'll be no more idolatry and sin and unrighteousness. In that kingdom, God with his own hand will wipe tears, every tear from our eyes. And so there's a sense in which we have to raise our gaze from the situation to the God who rules and the Christ who's coming and the world that awaits where inconsolable things in this life will be permanently fixed in the life to come. We've got to bear that message and that news as Christian people. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want to invite you to do something. I want to call you to do something, challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to recognize that your sin is creating messes in your life. And those messes are hurting other people too. That's how you know your sin is real. It breaks you and it breaks others. But I want you to know that you can be free from the guilt of sin and you can be free from the power of sin if you would repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ in faith. Trusting him as the son of God who was crucified to pay the penalty for your sin and who was resurrected from the grave so that you might live forever in the forgiveness, the love, the righteousness, and the hope of eternal life which comes through faith in Christ. God is giving you a kingdom if you will take it. He's giving you a a world where there will be no more brokenness and no more sin if you will trust in him. You must turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And let me tell you right now that if you turn to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. His salvation is free. He gives it to you, but it's costly following Jesus. You're going to have to quit some things you'd rather not quit. You're going to have to confess some things you'd rather not confess. You're going to have to learn a new way of living as you follow Jesus. And that's going to feel sometimes like having your arm cut off or your eye plucked out. But it's worth it. That is far better than judgment and hell. Because if God counts your sins against you, you will never be able to stand in his judgment. But if you put your faith in Christ, you will never have to worry about his judgment. Trust the Lord. Live eternally in his love. Begin a life of repentance. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. One more way of illustrating and applying the text as we close. Right now, our country is gearing up for a debate over abortion. You've no doubt seen the headlines in the news. With the passage of laws banning abortion in Alabama and Missouri and a couple other states and a number of states with fetal heartbeat laws uh, on, the, on the docket to be considered. No doubt that the stage is being set uh, for battles through the courts and in the culture. 
one side will only see the woman and put a question mark over the baby. The other side it be tempted to only see the baby, put a question mark over the woman. Both sides will be tempted to address the issue as a power problem rather than a spiritual problem. Both sides will attempt to avoid the cost of addressing the problem. But as Christians, we can't. What does Ezra 9 and 10 have to say about all of this? Well, I think if we're taking the book of Ezra as a whole and chapters 9 and 10 as a whole, I think there are at least three things as Christians we might want to keep in mind as this debate goes on and as the Lord gives us opportunity to be salt and light in it. Number one, I think Ezra 9 and 10 says, don't forget the sin. Don't forget sin. Whether it's the sexual sins that often lead to pregnancy or the sin of killing the baby. But the last verse here also says, don't forget the women and children. God doesn't. Like Hagar, abandoned by Abraham, crying alone in the desert with her son Ishmael, God sees and God's people ought to see and respond. If, if Christian people are to be godly, then we must see women in their distress and we must respond too. A third thing. We must put God above sin and above people. As long as the debate gets framed and as long as the argument is framed in terms of baby or mother, which comes first, we're still man-centered, aren't we? Only when God is first can we see our way forward. Only when we see that God is a God who cares for everybody in the picture including the father that we've not yet named. Do we begin to have a whole view of the picture and we begin to take on a heart expansive enough to care about all concern and to then weigh into that, not as a matter of partisan politics, not as a matter of of sort of uh, hawks on one side or the other, but to weigh into that as God's compassionate people trying to serve everyone involved. Protect the baby, yes. Surround the mother with love and support and resources? Yes. Find the father, encourage him to play a part in the mom and the baby's decision and life? Yes. Provide practical resources for the establishment of a, of a new home, help with the light bill, help with the, help with the food bill? Yes. It's not a win, not from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective, If we end abortion and sentence women and children to a life of isolation and poverty and pain, that that can't be our vision of victory. And, And it's not a victory if abortion continues and children are killed, but women go on in convenience or freedom or however you want to frame that. That's not a win either. A win from an abundant life perspective means that we've gotten dad involved and he's taken responsibility and that he and mom, by God's grace, make a decision to have the baby and that mom and dad married, if they're healthy enough to marry, raise that child in the way God intended with the support of a community called a local church that's supplying resources and needs. 
Let the politicians argue. Let us deliver mercy. And may the Lord give us grace to do so. Repentance, which leads to sanctification, actually makes the saint happy. It's costly, but it's worth it. Let's put our profession into action as we live for the Lord. Let's pray together.